We're all in slightly different territory this morning, and uh, Pastor Laura confessed to the folks who were here earlier that, um, and I'm a little uncomfortable this morning, quite frankly, because this is the first time I've led worship with shoes on for a very, very long time, so I, I'm feeling like I'm going to fall over here or something. I don't know what I'm doing on these things. Now, I need to take an opinion poll this morning before we go too far. Uh, my dear, dear, dear wife, who is a, an expert in fashion sense, objected to my shirt this morning, saying that uh, she thinks it's suitable for hanging around the house where absolutely nobody else could see it. So I'm just wondering this morning how you feel about my shirt. Uh, okay, thanks. This is why we don't take opinion polls on everything. Um, I want you to just join me with a word of prayer first. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. We pray as we do this that you would find us teachable and moldable. And uh, we would lift uh, up this time to you, Lord, that we might look more like Jesus at the end of it than we do at the beginning of it. We pray in his name. Amen. In just a couple of minutes, when I start to read the Bible passage, it's going to be up on the screen for you. And if you're watching at home and you're watching through the website, there's an opportunity to access the Bible translation just to the right of the picture. You can pick the translation and cruise to the place that will be this morning. Uh, A couple of cabinet meetings ago, I think I shared um, that there was a phrase that haunted us when I was in the military planning business. And that phrase is that we don't know what we don't know. And if ever there was a situation that, uh, for which that phrase is apt, it's this health situation that we're in right now. We just do not know what we don't know. And uh, we don't know the various ways the disease is transmitted. We don't know the various uh, uh, accelerating properties of, uh, of environments that the disease is transmitted in. We don't know what might precipitate a resurgence of kind of imminent danger. And here's the thing. I have been absolutely stunned amazed by how many people have presumed to add in their opinions and and view them as facts. When even the people who study disease for a living go, you know what, there are things about this thing that we just don't know. And over the last several months, of course, the advice has changed a little bit on what should or shouldn't happen. And that's a function of the fact that we don't know what we don't know. And so the folks who are smart about this, the epidemiologists and the people who study disease transmission, Those are the folks I'm listening to, because even when they say we don't know what we don't know, they're saying it from a position of credibility. And I said I've been stunned by people who have just layered their opinion over this and said this is good. We have a good friend who lives in Arizona, uh, Pastor Laura's lifelong friend, and uh, she uh, texted Pastor Laura the other day, and one day they had 2,500 new cases of COVID-19 reported. One day. Texas, somebody told me this morning, I think that Texas, I think Pastor Gary mentioned this, that Texas had 4,000 in one day. And so as we move forward, folks, as a church, I don't care what all those opinions are out there, quite frankly. And I think our leadership team is committed to making this place be the safest possible as we continue to try to resume those things about which we do those things that we do in church. And so, for example, this morning, we're going to get to a couple of places, as I mentioned before, where we're going to ask you to put masks on um, because we don't want to uh, potentially harm our neighbor by spraying stuff that we shouldn't be spraying. I asked Sally to move back a couple of pews so that she's out of my spitting range up here so that I'm not wearing a mask while I'm talking to you right now. Uh, 
Uh, these are things that we're just going to do to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's, that's what it boils down to. Um, and so we don't know what we don't know. In the face of those moments like this one, where we don't know what we don't know, I think we need to turn to what we do know so that we can hold on to that firmly. And I mentioned last time from our last apartment-based worship service experience that my granddaughter's about to go off, my oldest granddaughter's about to go off to medical school, our oldest granddaughter, and um, in the fall. And uh, when they do that, medical students, when they launch that experience, one of the first things they're exposed to is their first of 160 hours of what they call gross anatomy. Now, I'm not sure why it's gross, although having you know, dissected a few animals in high school, I can see why they may call it gross, but I think it's just gross means a larger sense. And when I talked about that last week, I said that two weeks ago, we heard the Apostle John talk about being people of truth and love, and that those things weren't um, individual emphases, they were, they were both emphasized at the same time. And last week, we took apart the word love, as he expresses it to us in this little letter, the second John. Today, we're going to dissect the truth. And now again, this is not some kind of balance between truth and love, but this is a radical emphasis on both of them. Of all the people on the planet, Christians should be radical people when it comes to the notions of truth and love. Because I've got to tell you, I've been around a couple of years, not quite as long as Dr. Steve Hawk, but I've been around a couple of years, and I can tell you that deception takes its toll every time. Every time there's somebody in whom we have invested trust and we find out that they have been deceiving us, it like wears away our trust quotient, if you will. And there have been examples, political examples, religious leader examples, all kinds of examples out there. We don't need to highlight any of those this morning. But John, in the passage we're going to look at today, he points to particular deceptions, and these deceptions, these departures from the truth, have eternal consequences. And so, what do we want to do this morning? We want to realize that Christians, of all people, Christians should be on guard against the influence of falsehood. So, I'm going to invite you to follow along. 2 John, um, verses 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. The words will be up on the screen, and again, if you're watching on the website, you can see the words to the right of the picture. This is the little letter of 2 John. This is the passage right in the middle. John is speaking, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, that you, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. So, in the face of not knowing what we don't know, what do we know? Well, we know that there are Deceivers, And we know that there are deceivers trying to popularize deceitful messages. And that that was true in the time when John wrote this letter, and it's true in our day. And here's the thing about these deceptions. They are intentional. They're not just mistakes, right? Two plus two equals five. That's a mistake. 
But this stuff that John's talking about here is not a mistake. It is purposeful. It's intentional. Now, I am not an attorney, nor the son of an attorney, but I think I have watched enough law and order to know that in criminal cases, a key element is intent, right? What did the person intend to do? And as I observe the implementation of legal penalties, the penalties are different depending upon the notion of intent. We were in uh, New England when the Patriots Day uh, Boston Marathon bombing took place. In fact, we were out in the western part of the state looking at a college for my stepson. And on our way back, my son called me. Big panic. Dad, where are you? I'm in the car. No, no, no. Where are you exactly? And he went on to tell us about the Boston Marathon bombing. He was in Colorado. He had heard about it already. And they chased down those two actors who performed that, perpetrated that wickedness for a couple of days. And one died in an exchange of gunfire with the police. The other brother... Zokar Zornayev survived and uh, was going to trial. And one of the things, based on what they discerned about their intent, was that he was going to be possibly subject to the death penalty if convicted. Now, he was convicted, didn't get the death penalty, but see, the intent is important. And that's why John wants to highlight here for us this morning the notion of intent. What people mean to do, that counts for something. And these folks he's talking about, they mean to deceive. And what is the core of their deception? It's that their message about Jesus in verse 7 is wrong. Essential truth is wrong. Now, there are levels of issues that surround Christianity. And I, I kind of divide these issues into three levels. There's third level issues, second level issues, and first level issues. There's third level issues. And these are issues of personal preference. It's kind of like some people drink a delightful soft drink called Pepsi. Other people drink Coke. And why they do that is beyond me. But that's a difference of opinion, right? And you've been around church life long enough to know that expressions of preference come up. Worship style issues. By the way, I saw some of those congregational toes tapping when Tommy Walker was playing up here on the, on the screen. So, um, worship style, carpets, chairs versus pews, hymnals versus PowerPoint. My favorite third level issue, because it's dastardly when it comes up, is music. And here's the thing about music in worship. The point about the music is not what I like. The point about music and worship is, does this speak to my sisters and brothers in Christ? What do they like? See, if we were really doing this right, we would be forever asking what our sisters and brothers like and wanting to sing that stuff, whether we like it or not. Let me give you a little quiz this morning, two-question quiz. What piece of music was described when it first came out as vulgar mischief, void of all Christian feelings? Anybody? Silent Night. Silent Night. Here's another one. What piece of music, when it first came out, was described as vulgar theater, too much repetition, and not enough message? Anybody? Handel's Messiah. Right? They were objecting to the repetitions of the hallelujahs 
in Handel's Messiah. And here's what I think about that. I think it takes about 25 hallelujahs to sink into our brains and souls before we really are praising the Lord. So this strikes me as comical. Vulgar theater. Really? Third level issues are issues of preference. But I have been amazed in my life as a pastor and a teacher of Bible students and a teacher of prospective ministers, how many churches get wrapped around the axle about preference issues? Then there are second-level issues. Now, these issues are more substantive, like the Lord's Supper, for example. What do we believe is happening when we participate in that meal together? Some people believe that the elements, the, the bread and the juice or wine, are actually turned into the body and blood of Christ at a particular moment in the service. That view is called transubstantiation. Other people believe that that the the spirit of Christ is somehow present within, with, and under the elements, but the elements don't actually change into anything. That view is called consubstantiation. And then there are other folks who hold the view of, uh, of kind of a remembrance view. We call this the memorial view, that when we're coming together and participating in those elements and sharing them with each other, we are reminding ourselves of the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. There are differences of opinion, second-level issues about baptism, immersion as a believer, sprinkling as an infant. There are differences of opinion about church government, congregational, bishop rule, elder rule, etc. These second-level issues, these are why we have denominations. Because groups of people have organized around some of these second-level issues. But then, hey folks, then there are the first level issues. The core of the gospel. The person and work of Jesus. The second person of the Trinity. Fully God, fully man. Who comes into the world in the flesh to pay the price for your sin and my sin. Looking for a personal response from each of us. To graft us in, to join us in together into the body of Christ. Issues about the the nature and authority of the Bible. Believing that the Bible is what it purports to be and what Jesus talked about it as, which is the very word of God, or just somebody's opinion about religious stuff. These kinds of issues are the first level kinds of issues. And these are the kinds of issues that John is talking about here. He's not wasting his time with preference stuff. And he's not wasting his time with church government stuff. He is focused on these first-level issues. And when he calls these people deceivers here, they are being deceptive about these first-level issues. And they are, in verse 7, actively spreading that false message. And because they're actively spreading a false message, they are identified with ultimate evil themselves. Right? Now, here's the thing. When we talk about truth, Our culture has reached a place where it has rejected the notion of absolute truth, that there are things that are absolutely right and absolutely wrong. For a long time, I I taught ethics to undergraduates in college, and I was amazed by this behavior. I would try to push them and push them and push them and push them and say, is there anything you think is absolutely wrong? And almost without exception, they go, well, I don't know. There might be some extenuating circumstances. And so I would do this little experiment. I'd walk up to the biggest, baddest-looking dude in the class. 
And I'd walk right up to him. And I'd, in his face, I'd say, hey, do you have a girlfriend? Of course, the biggest, baddest dude in the class, he always had a girlfriend. And I'd say, what's her name? And he'd tell me her name. And I'd say, okay, well, say Cindy was sitting right next to you today. And say, out of nowhere, I walked up to you, looked you in the eye, and slapped the snot out of Cindy. Would that be wrong? Oh, yeah, I guess so. See, the notions of absolutes, which we play with in the culture as being kind of not very important, they're absolutely essential. And John is talking about this absolute truth of the person and work of Jesus in this passage this morning. So, he then pulls apart a little bit the characteristics of false teaching. There's two basic flavors of the character, uh, two kind of general categories, excuse me, of false teaching surrounding Jesus. Two basic categories. One is what I call gospel minus. And gospel minus usually means that they have subtracted something from the biblical revelation about who Jesus is. In verse 7, John calls this not acknowledging that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, here's an issue. And you're going to be sad that I have shoes on this morning because I might step on some toes. Sorry. Believing in Jesus is not ultimately about being nice. Believing in Jesus is a radical commitment to truth and love. And in operating in truth and love, we have to be clear when we say some things are just not true. I don't care how nice the people are. Now, you all likely have friends and acquaintances, I do too, who come from other belief systems. And they might be super nice people. But our objective is not niceness. Our objective is conformity to the image of Christ. Who, John says is the real deal, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity. And any system that subtracts from that and says, well, you know, Jesus, yeah, I'm not so sure he was uh, born of a virgin, uh, and he grew up, and he taught some really interesting things, and I listened to some of that, but I can't buy this whole God-man stuff. Or a system that says, yeah, he, uh, you know, God and, 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 the, and the Heavenly Mother, they, whoever that is, kind of got together and, and they had Jesus. And, and so Jesus is kind of just like we are. Only he grew up earlier than we did and got there earlier than we did. These are all wrong ideas. Biblically, they're wrong ideas. Gospel minus. So, I haven't named names this morning. I could, but I'm not going to. Because we all know that we have friends who fall in this category. We have some very, very, very deep, dear friends whose uh, uh, family is affiliated with one of these groups. And, 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 and they talked about powerful ways in which this group administered to an elderly family member. And yes, yay, they're nice. But they've subtracted from Jesus. So gospel minus. Then there's gospel plus. Right? Gospel minus, gospel plus. Gospel plus, verse 9, John calls this running ahead of the gospel. Listen, anything that adds to the gospel message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, anything that adds to that is gospel plus, and it's wrong. It's wrong. 
You can't perform your way into heaven. And if you have embraced Christ as your Savior, there's nothing you can do to make that either, either more or less true. I, again, I've been around churches a fair amount of time and met some really, really energetic people who have been working really, really hard in the church and accumulating this religious resume, believing that somehow they need to add that stuff to the essential message of salvation in Christ alone. It's gospel plus. Now, does God call us to do things once we have a relationship with Jesus? Yes. But that's not to perform our way into a relationship. That's gratitude for Jesus providing the means for that relationship to start to begin with. Why do we do what we do as Christians? Man, if you're doing it out of obligation or a sense of whatever, then quit doing it. Whatever we do as believers, we should do because we're grateful to God for the work that he's done in Christ on our behalf. And John is quick to say here that there are devastating consequences for folks that embrace this stuff. Despite their sincerity about it, they don't have God. And this is why we need to pay attention to John's warning. John says, if we do support that kind of work, then we need to, verse 8, watch out. We need to be careful. And I, I want to give you a little Greek grammar lesson this morning. I know how much you really appreciate those when we do it. In verse 8, the verb that's translated, watch out, it's in the present tense in the original language of the New Testament. That means it's ongoing action. It's something we continue to do. We continue to watch out for the long haul, even when we're tired. A few years ago, a uh, driver on the Chicago Transit Authority Blue Line, uh, train operator, he, he fell asleep at the controls. And he plowed his train into the station and it went up the escalator a little bit. Fell asleep, disastrous consequences. Do you see? We stay awake. We stay awake. So that we can hold on to the truths that we know to be clear about Jesus. So, what do we do about this this morning? I think we need to be Bereans. B-E-R-E-A-N-S. Bereans. These are people that John uh, is referring to here and that are mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 11. We need to be Bereans. These are people who check things out carefully and are looking for truth. Here's how they're described in Acts chapter 17. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and, here's the phrase, examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I'm using a wireless microphone right now, which I haven't used in a while, and it feels a little funny on my face, I've got to tell you. Uh, no comments about my face looking funny, please. But this wireless mic is transmitting over a fixed frequency to the receiver back there by the sound system. If either one is off on a different frequency, the message does not get through, right? Well, here's the thing. You and I in our lives as Christians, we need a source that's a fixed frequency and that for us is the Bible. It's the Word of God. 
this frequency, this this inscripturated truth is our reliable guide for faith and practice. But not only do we need to be on the right frequency, do you like my bracelet? Not only do we need to be on the right frequency, but we need to have the volume adjusted so that it's turned up enough so that we hear it every day against the backdrop of the other noises that we hear in our culture. We take it in. We source ourselves on this truth. So, all this boils down to, man, read your Bibles. Dig it out. Blow the dust off it. Establish a reading plan. Get into the Word. Stay in the Word. Have it feed you. If you don't like to read, then get an audio version of it and Plug it into your smartphone and listen to it when you're on the road or when you're out walking or doing whatever, doing chores or whatever. Take it in so that we're focused on this fixed frequency and the volume's turned up enough, up enough so that we can discern truth as we live out John's call to be agents of truth and love. Pray with me. Father, we thank you this morning for this truth from your word. We pray that you would speak into us Speak into our lives as we consult your word for truth each and every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.